0: I'd like you to open your Bible to John chapter 8, and we'll continue on our theme, our study of living liberated, living liberated. A lot of people, I'm sure, in Christianity think that because they are a Christian, they don't need to heed things the Scripture says about being snared, about being captured or recaptured or re-snared. But the Bible has a lot of information to us as Christians, warnings to us that tell us that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't have to be cautious or to pay attention. Because once the devil has lost his hold on you, say you were born again and you were delivered and all of that, he doesn't give up trying to gain access back to make your life miserable. I don't mean to make you lost, I mean, but tries to get back in your life to continue to mess it up as he once did. And if we don't give the more earnest heed to these things, then what could have benefited us passes us by, and we live far below the level that God has for us. Now, Jesus said these words in John 8, verse 31 and 32. He said, if you continue in my words, then... You are my disciples indeed, and, verse 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We have been made free to stay free. Amen? We have been made free in order to stay free. We do not have to live bound anymore. We do not have to be under the thumb of the devil. We've already looked at all of that, and I'm not going over it again, but... One of those verses in Romans 6 says, sin shall not have dominion over you. If you know what it is and how it has worked in your life and you've been delivered from it, your eyes have been opened, then you know what to fight against. It's a sad thing because a lot of Christians really don't know what sin is or how it affected their lives. They resist a little of it and they live a defeated life. They really do. They try to smile. They try to be happy, but things don't work for them. It doesn't have to be like that. So there's warnings to Christian people. There are ways that the devil gains access back to your life. Because remember the verse in Ephesians 4, 27, it says that we are not to give place to the devil. Now, if we couldn't give place to the devil because we're Christian, then that verse would be meaningless. But it says to Christians, Ephesians was written to spirit-filled Christians, actually Gentiles. And he says, don't give place to, To the devil, because he does, like Peter said, he goes about like a roaring lion. He looks for those he can devour. On that bad day you're having and inspires you to say words that actually snare you. Remember, the first thing we said was you have to guard your mind. Your mind's a battlefield. You've got to put on the helmet of salvation, know what salvation means and what its principles and benefits are. And you let that soak in your mind and saturate your mind so that your mind is word of God minded. And you begin to think like that. And when the devil comes around with a lie, you can bring that lie to the obedience of Christ. We don't have to live by lies. We just have to acknowledge the truth and live by it. And the second thing we're on now is that you have to guard your mouth. I don't think a lot of well-taught Christians realize yet the danger of what they're saying about how you can be snared. Remember Proverbs six two says you're snared by the words of your mouth. One translator says you are trapped by the words of your mouth. You are ensnared by the words of your mouth. Now, that being true, we have to realize this: that as a Christian, I need to set a watch before my mouth. I need to guard the door of my lips lest I say something I shouldn't say and sin against God. Or I open a door to the enemy. He ever stands before God to accuse us to find a cause of legally accessing us. And if you give place to the devil, then he can access your life. That is, he can come in and do something in some area of it, torment, disrupt. I think it still says in the Bible that the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy It is our responsibility to give the more earnest heed to what God has said in order to conduct successful warfare against the devil. He does not have a right to me. I may have to endure his trials and attacks. I'm going to have to prove my faith somewhere in my life, and so I may have to stand my ground and go through some difficult times with certain things, but at least I'm going to say that I'm trusting God for this. I'm going to stay with God on this subject. I'm not going to bow down to the pressure, to the pain, or anything else. I'm going to stay with the Lord. And if it's church night, I'm going to church. I'm going to get up and go, and I'm going to act like what I believe is true. And I'm not going to let the devil take any advantage of me whatsoever. There are people that fight like that. We used to call them old school. But it ought to be just Christianity. But you've got to guard your mouth. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew Chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is a true fact, a biblical fact, that whatever is in your heart, we may not see it, but eventually we'll hear it. Because whatever is in your heart, that's what your mouth will talk about. That's what you will say. And he said in the same chapter 12, Matthew said, by your words, you shall be justified, made right with God or maintained right with God by your words. Or he said, by your words, you will be condemned. Now, one way or the other, and we live by talking. That's how we communicate. And in the multitude of words there lacketh not sin. So we're going to have to study to be quiet, as Paul wrote, and deal with a lot of things in our life. Let me tell you what we've dealt with so far. Jesus mentioned idle words. We looked at things like idle words, like slang and jesting. And I don't mean if you use a slang word or you say, hey, that's cool. I'm not saying it, you know, all the devil's got you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are people that are so in tune with the world, that's the only way they talk. They're given to that kind of language. They want to be like what they watch and what they hear and who they hang around. And they adapt that kind of language. And that kind of talk, and it really is out of place in Christian settings. What if I was up here today and I said, now, there was this dude in the Bible, and now, he wasn't cool. You would think, you know, that's not appropriate, wouldn't you? Unless you've never been to church in your life, you thought that was cool. That's not appropriate language. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. There's something about that that lowers the level of what this is all about instead of us being brought to a higher level of living and speech than we used to have. We all know we're not supposed to use bad words and obscene words and cursing and cussing. That doesn't mean that a Christian on a very weak moment when the car wouldn't start or the lights wouldn't come on or the whatever ticks people off, instant tick off, You'd have to be a Hamilton to know what I'm talking about, but there are times in which things do get tossed or thrown or something a long time ago. Now, that doesn't mean now that, well, it's all over. You're going to hell now. That's not what I'm saying. But there are people who do that all the time and never get bothered by it. That's not good. We should be affected. Anything that is a flaw in our Christian life, anything that does not glorify the Lord or... Find his acceptance that we do, we should be bothered by it, especially when it comes to words, because we are so good at saying the wrong thing. We looked at also at ephesians four twenty nine that we should use edifying speech instead of just putting people down all the time, and we all have done a little bit of that teasing and a lot of that in our lives, but there are people that can't stop. they do it all the time. they think they're really funny because they're always using somebody else as the front of their jokes or their comments. That edifies nobody. It really doesn't. I mean, there's been times that I think we've all said things that didn't edify. You know, we just call something dumb. Dumb? Where you get that dumb dress? That's not necessary to say that. Tell me, it's not necessary to say that. Amen. Because I, like I said, some of us grew up on that side of the street, and some of this is more difficult to overcome. The southern boys probably have a little more trouble with this than you folks from other parts of the country. It's kind of the way we grew up. I did. But it was the way everybody was, and so there's a more difficulty in overcoming all of that and having your mind completely revamped in that area. In Ephesians 5, he talks about vulgarity again and obscenity, joking, jesting, often inappropriately, coarse wittiness, like the stand-up comic who has to use bad words, vulgar words, or innuendos to get a response from an audience or from a crowd he's with, the gang, and so he's always saying goofy and dumb and bad and off-the-cuff stuff. Oh, he may go to church, but again, he may think, well, I'm a Christian, so none of this can affect me. I think people do. But we have to give all of that up. We have to crucify the flesh with all of its desire. To say that, to be the town clown, to be the life of the party, you got to give it up. you got to bury it and die to it and get rid of it because if you think about it, that doesn't glorify God. And yet we've gotten by with it so much, we didn't just fall over dead, so we think, what's the big deal? But, well, the big deal is now that you can read it and now that you can see it in the Bible, you're not supposed to do it. Now today, let's go to the last few things I want to say about your mouth and ways in which we can be snared because it is so easy for you to open the door to oppression and depression in your life with words. Three words here, there are criticism, murmuring, and grumbling. And while inwardly you may be going, oh, oh, brother, I'm gonna get shot this morning for sure. Well, we're probably all gonna have a little wound, but that's good, because at least we're not gonna get by with anything without knowing we shouldn't do things. And as I've said so many times, I preach to myself as much as anybody else. Let me start with criticism. I want to say three things about criticism this morning. What it means, first of all, and secondly, what it does, what criticism does to us. And thirdly, what causes criticism. Now, we're all familiar with criticism. Criticism is putting people down, judging other people badly saying things about other people that you should not say. Some say it's justifying yourself at the expense of others. It's the act of judging or censuring or denouncing or just plain putting people down, criticizing every day of your life in society. It goes on abundantly. There is no talk show known to man that doesn't criticize unless it's about sewing and making napkins or something. But any kind of popular, widely listened to talk show is almost always political or sports, but they're either one. They're both critical because people like to listen to criticism. Now, we don't want to admit that, but people like to listen to what's wrong with other people. They like to hear all the nifty, neat, ways that people can find fault with other people to point out wrongs with other people. Look at what happens with political things in finding fault with political people. The president this and I'll tell well, I can't believe that and i well, you know, when, and Bush, it was all Bush's fault. Did you know that the storm that came through this morning was Bush's fault? Yeah. The deer that ran in front of your car was Bush's fault. Somebody's looking for somebody to criticize, to blame, or to find fault with. And like I said, a lot of people like criticism. They listen to it all the time when you listen to talk shows because they can make it funny. It's back to that coarse wittiness again. They talk about this one and call them names. You know, he's, uh, you know, I didn't want to mention the names that I have heard politicians called by people who aren't Politicians people who have never had to make decisions that politicians make. They're not under the gun. They have nothing to lose, and they criticize. If you ever walked in somebody else's shoes, you might not be so critical. If you ever thought about the person you're criticizing, what they go through, just take President Bush, for example. First became president, and what's the first thing that happened? The Twin Towers were attacked. Never had anything like that happen ever. How do you deal with that? There's no army. There's no soldier you can attack. There's no enemy that is defined except just terrorist. And so how do you do that? And then people start grumbling and become, oh, I'll tell you what I do. No, you probably wouldn't do anything. It's easy. It's easy to be critical. It's easy to complain and it's easy to grumble and and things of that sort. But when you verbally run somebody down, you're not benefiting anybody, not yourself, and somebody is listening to what you're saying. And how many times have you heard the phrase, what goes around comes around? The only people I know who seldom get criticized are preachers. I mean, we don't get much of that, so we don't know the effect of it. I speak that facetiously, if you can spell it, facetiously. Because I know that preachers are easy targets, mainly because we're perfect. And everybody liked to find something imperfect. And if not the preacher, then they're kids. I grew up in a time in which that was a difficult thing because a lot of the decisions you made with your children were not because it was the best thing for them to do or what you really felt in your heart. It was because if they made a mistake, the critics, and there were experts in I mean, these were Summa cum laude critics. These were the best. They were watching all the time, like a bunch of little sheriffs. You know, they were always watching for what's wrong. And when they found something wrong, it was on the horn, and everybody knew what was happening. I saw his kid eating a chocolate candy bar made in China, or whatever they think was wrong. <laughs> or he has white wall tires on his car. How world is that? Or his daughter had blue jeans on, and she was working in the garden, or something mowing grass and I'll tell you what he's back. just ah, blah 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 oh and his wife people just delight in criticize but as bad as the one who's criticizing are those who like to listen to it you see it's the same spirit there are people who criticize we all have we all have there are people who just do it all the time they do it for a living that's the spirit of criticism they get paid to find faults with other people when you have that in the church, you've got a problem. Church can't function well with critical spirits in it. Well, I've had a few of those in my life. That is, I've had to attempt to pastor people who had critical spirits. You can't pastor people like that. You really can't. They just find fault with everything you do. I've told you before about the lady one time, the song leader put a, a little paper on his seat that said reserved, and she come down and tore them up and said, that's not scriptural. Well, I could say a lot of things about what was scriptural, not scriptural but we're talking about criticism, so I'll leave that out. But there are just people who are given to finding fault. They're never, almost never happy people. They seem to be unable to just cope with things. They fly off the handle easy. They're critics. Life doesn't flow smoothly for them. How could it? This is an open door to oppression, this is an open door that removes the solutions to your life. I mean, you've opened your mouth and you're trapped by it, the words you spoke. You were warned not to say that and talk like that about other people. Listen, there is nobody in this room that's perfect. I doubt that there's a perfect parent in this room. I would imagine everybody in this room is subject to mistakes and failures. I've made mine. I don't try to hide them, and I'm not proud of them, but I'm not running from them either. What I've done, I've done. It's true with all of us. But nobody has a right who is imperfect to be running their mouth about other people who are imperfect. Didn't Jesus say, how is it that you can find a little speck in somebody's eye when you've got a log I can't get that picture in my mind right. But Jesus said, you know, you go around looking for specks and flaws in other people's lives and you don't realize that your life is worse than theirs. It's a warning. See, we should read that and say, I need, before I open my mouth, I need to think about what I'm about to say and measure it, whether or not it's going to benefit anybody, and secondly, whether it's going to be constructive and fix anything. And if it doesn't qualify that, then I, really I need to just get some duct tape. And run around my mouth two or three times so that I just don't say a word. So that I just keep my mouth shut. Was Paul ever criticized? You know, the Epicureans called him a babbler. What's this babbler have to say? In Second Corinthians 10, he was talking about those who said of Paul said, you know, the people who were trying to put him down in the Corinthian church, they made light of him. They weren't attacking what he was teaching as much as who he is. That's called ad hominem in Latin, and that's when you attack not the content of what they said, but the character of the person. So that you can't find fault with the content of their speech, but you find fault with their character. Well, look at him. Paul said they say his bodily stature is weak. He must not have been a robust-looking fellow. I mean, he probably wouldn't qualify as Iron Man. They said his speech is contemptible. And I thought, wow, even Paul said my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but it was anointed speech. And no matter what he looked like, no matter what his appearance was, no matter how his words sounded, they affected people. That's called the anointing. That's all he had to do was be willing to stay with God and speak whatever God gave him with what voice he had and what body God gave. And God would bless him. And the people who looked better than him were much more polished in speaking than him. They just found fault with him. And we do it as Christians all the time. I thought of so many stories. I thought of an hour and a half of examples in my lifetime of how critical people have been about other people. People that go from one church to visit, and they go to a church, and they can't enter into worship. They can't flow because all they can think of is how many women don't have head coverings, how many people are wearing this, or who's not doing that. And I think, that doesn't glorify God. You're no blessing to his kingdom. You're just letting the devil use you to create chaos. Let me tell you something that God hates. Would you open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 6? Something that God hates. This verbally running people down. Just saying things that are unnecessary. They benefit nobody. Look at Proverbs 6. Verse Nineteen. And he that soweth discord. It says in the fourteenth verse, and we'll get to that again after a while. You might want to put a pencil in there. He that soweth discord among brethren. How do you sow discord among brethren? You talk about brethren. You speak down about other people. You evaluate other people and you find them to come short of your goals. And you might as well say, any of us, or all of us, we might as well say, I am the standard by which other people should be measured. I have basically arrived. And if you're not where I am, then you're not much. That was the whole content of Romans 14. And back in the old days, I never heard, I heard one man teach on it, because he teaching the book of Romans, I never heard any of my charismatic brethren ever, ever speak in Romans 14. One fellow who once said he couldn't go anywhere to church because he knew too much. Wow. He told me, he said he had never taught Romans 14. He wasn't sure he could get that right or something like that. Because it's all about judging, accepting a person where they are. Here's one that just knew in the Lord, and he doesn't believe you should work on Saturday or the Sabbath. And here's another brother who says, no, you, you got it all wrong. And they couldn't leave each other alone. They're trying to make each other like themselves. And and Paul wrote said, Look, he does what he does as unto the Lord. That's his conviction. That's where his heart is right now. Leave him alone. God is able to make him stand. You're not his boss. I'm his boss. I'm the one who created him. That chapter's worth reading for those who like to judge other people. If you were a preacher, about the time you think you're a pretty good preacher and you get the biggest crowd you've ever had, you fall flat, completely flat, totally flat, mega flat on your face. I did that once, stuttering. I mean, I thought I was over-stuttering. Well, I was until that night, and it left after that. And I, I, I just couldn't get a word out, and the people who came to hear were kind of... You could see them going, what did you bring me here for? When you think you're somebody... And you begin to measure other people by yourself. And you get to a place where your comments about other people are really because they're not like you. You don't do that, so they're not like you, so you say that. And yet all you have to do is be still, be quiet, Shh, don't say it. Just keep your comments to yourself. Now, turn to John 7. That does not mean now that you can't make a judgmental statement. I don't know how you could have church if you didn't. I mean, how could you do what you need to do if you didn't have to reach a verdict against somebody or something? In John 7, for example, verse 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The word judge means to reach a decision. The word has to do with reaching a decision by looking at both sides, by evaluating everything. How many times do parents make judgment calls against children? Did you clean up your room? No, you are lazy. Now, what if the kid said, didn't you hear the sermon Sunday, Mom? And she said, did you hear the other 3,000? Over 3,000 now. But how many times do kids get to arguing and you have to jump in and say, I told you not to do that. Well, he started, they just did it anyway. So she says, you're both wrong. Is she judging? She is. If you saw two people arguing out in front of the church, two adults arguing out in front of the church, and it was getting pretty heated, and you walked out there and said, you guys need to come inside and talk because you're both wrong. I just made a judgment call. I've had to make judgment calls about disciplinary actions in the church this one running around with that one, this one, this one, that one, this one borrowing, not paying back, and say, you know, we can't have that going on in the church here. If I'm an overseer and I have to give an account for the health and the well-being of the church as well as your soul, I can't let you do that. Nothing against you. But it was what you did that has caused me to reach a verdict against you. We're even to judge ourselves. You're even to judge yourself as to whether what you're doing is right or not. And if you would judge yourself and not compromise anything but reach a verdict against yourself, you wouldn't cause God to reach a verdict against you. That's First Corinthians 11. We hear so many people talk about other people. It's, I mean, the movies, the talk shows, sports talk, I mean, they're just criticizing all the time. And again, it's not like we don't reach judgment against people because there's times you have to say things and there's times you have to say, you shouldn't do that. That was wrong. If you saw two people in a motel that belonged to your church and neither one were married to each other, could I say you're adulterers? Like say, well, you weren't in there. How do you know? Well, I sure wasn't, but it was enough of the appearance of evil that I'm going to go with a look in your eye thing and say, you're an adulterer. See, I could reach that verdict. I have to. We all do on occasion. But when you go around constantly putting people down, and you're a critic, you're causing division in the church, and you eventually will cause a separation. And again, one thing God hates is separation. I mean, that classic verse of what God has joined together in Matthew, Jesus said, let not man put asunder. God hates separation whether it's in the church, a person who's causing discord, his body, which is being put together by his spirit, and there are people trying to separate that. You're in more trouble than you can shake a stick at, or you're in more trouble than you realize. You're in a lot of trouble because God hates the fact that that's being done. But the person who is doing it, here's the point. The person who is doing it is being used by the devil to disrupt what God is doing, and you open up a door to bondage. Now, the bondage, we may not even see the specific effect, except that your life never gets unraveled. You're never happy. You're happy when people are laughing or you act like they are, but, boy, you're moody, you're tense. Critics are. I've heard stories about some of the funniest comedians you ever heard were some of the most difficult people to be around because they were just terrible people, The mental state. I mean, just always tense. Their whole life was about a laugh from somebody. What does criticism do? We know that it opens the door. Let me give you a few things to tell you a few things that criticism does. If you read Mark 7, 21 through 23 about various things there, which would include criticism, the couple words refer to speech. At the end of verse 23, he said, and by these things, we are defiled. I guess for the third time this morning, there are people who think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I can't be defiled. Well, Jesus said, if you do those things, if this is the way you live, I don't care what church you go to or what kind of experience you've had. He said, these are things that defile you. Now, who is a defiler? It's the devil. How does he defile? He comes in. He gets permission. He tips. He opens the door. We give place to the devil, and he comes in, and he begins to defile. Some things you don't know why I did that. I don't know why I'm doing that. Why do I keep saying that? Well, it's because of this work of the enemy in your life. A second thing that criticism does, it brings a curse. A curse. And a curse is when you're down and you can't get out. You can think about getting out. You may have a good day, but you don't get all the way out. A good example of a curse is Miriam, Miriam and Aram. Remember when Moses married that Ethiopian woman? Ethiopian woman, well, they didn't think he should marry an Ethiopian woman, but he married her. And Miriam had a fit over that. And, and the Bible says Miriam and Aram spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman he had married. Now, as far as I know, an Ethiopian woman is black. I've never been to Ethiopia, but I've seen Ethiopian Jews And maybe that was their problem. I don't know. Moses didn't have a problem, so he married this Ethiopian woman. And Miriam said, we don't agree to this. And you know what happened to her? The Bible says that Miriam became leprous still. It seemed like everybody in the Bible that came against Moses, the man of God, when they really attacked him, something would happen to him. I found today that whenever you begin to attack certain people that maybe that God has used, that the people lose what they had. I'm not sure I haven't seen a whole faith movement go into deep, steep decline because of that very thing. Just criticism and yakking about it. Why would they do that? Well, I'll tell you one thing, and you next thing you know, two or three years later, you look for these people. Most of them have backseat or gone, left their wives, It's just really better off all of us to keep our mouths shut and leave things like that alone. Another thing that it does is brings judgment. It brings judgment. In Numbers 16 and verse 35, it says, And there came a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. And in Numbers 16 and verse 49, And they that died in the plague were 14,700. Wow, fourteen thousand seven hundred. Moses, you take too much upon yourself. This is another one. All the people here are holy, and you act like you're the only ones that got anything to say. We're all holy. It's for two hundred and fifty of the princes next in line. They didn't like the fact that Moses was running the show. That God gave him that. They didn't accept that. And they all wanted to have something to say about it. And we just think, so Moses, a man who was more meek than any man, was more attacked. Moses said, you come out here tomorrow. You bring your censors and you come out here tomorrow and God will show us who's in charge and who isn't. You know, the next day, 14,700 people died. They would have been better off to have never spoken a word. Because in this case, judgment came on these people because of that. Barrenness, it's not the only reason for barrenness, but in one particular case, David married Saul's daughter, Michael. She was given to him because he won a battle. And he went out and brought the Ark of the Covenant back from the house of Obed-Eden and brought it back into Jerusalem. And he was so excited about the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to that little temple they had. David danced before the Lord. He danced with all his might. His heart was filled with holy joy. His spirit was so bright. Micah through the window looked, criticized its start. She didn't know that David had a dancing heart. Oh, the Holy Ghost was... Oh, that's for another time. And she despised him in her heart. When he finally came <laughs> in our word, Oh, you look good today out there dancing shamelessly. There in that little thing you had on. for those other base fellows, you look just like them, David. He said, you know, I not only look like them. He said, I'll look more like them next time I'll dance. Don't worry about it, woman. Now, we don't talk to women like that, but he did. And he said, you know, what I do, I did unto the Lord. And so she was barren. The Bible said she never had children after that. I mean, she never had children in her lifetime. How about disharmony? In Romans 14, it just tells you there about what disrupts a church, what causes trouble. Did you know that when you cast out the scoffer, strife and contention cease? Think of that. When you cast out a scoffer, strife and contention cease. I've seen that happen. I've just seen it happen. There have been times in my life, I never said it then, I don't think I've said much about it since. I don't think I've ever maybe said anything about it. Many times years ago when I'd come into the pulpit, it was almost a dreadful, difficult time. Like, oh, brother, who's going to find a problem with this today? How would you like to preach to that? To know that there are people that are getting ready to leave and they really don't like you and they'd like to hear something outrageous from you or something so they could really justify why they're leaving. So they could leave and say, Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you come out there and you can feel the tension. I could. The signal sent back to me was whoo. And it was difficult to preach in some of those days. And people were miserable. Nobody seemed to be real happy and people left and broke up and broke away and backslid and went back into the world and and gave up their beliefs. If you don't believe that an open door to the devil to really tear apart your Christian life happens because of criticism, then you need to listen to it again. We are far better off if we just keep our mouths shut. The best revival the most wonderful revival I've ever known was in Charlestown, Indiana, where I got saved in 1968 through 1970. Every week for several weeks, week after week after week, people kept coming to the Lord and they would come forward to be saved or to be baptized or to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Week after week after week and the church began to fill up The growth was great, and that's always leading to, you know, a bunch of newcomers and a few problems, and they were there. And then the preacher made a couple of decisions about what he was going to do, and we said, John, you can't do that. I did. I went into him. I was kind of the spokesman anyway, and I said, John, that ain't going to work. And he got upset with me about that. He started preaching about me. You know, there are some who are here who think that, well, I'm sitting right there. Everybody knew who he's talking about. And I finally decided I need to leave because if I don't, then people are going to turn away from him and turn to me or look for somebody. I'm, I'm getting out of here. And when he started that, the church died. Today it's Ichabod. The building has already been sold to the city, and it's a city hall now. Some of the most glorious moments in my life. Never anything like it since then. And the way that God met a bunch of simple-minded people, a basketball coach and a few just plain old people, six or seven preachers came out of that little church. They're still going. It was a wonderful move. What happened there remained. It's still going. But the building and the people who stayed there in that thing, it just fell apart. It died. It absolutely died. It had Ichabod written on the door. Preachers came in after that who weren't really qualified, and things happened. It's a tragic thing. I'm glad we don't worship buildings. I am really glad that the building is not what we're after. It's hearts of people. Because when our hearts were right, we had wonderful time there. But it all ended because of criticism. It died. It stopped. It ceased. It was no longer and never came back because of criticism. Never returned. When it was over because of that, it died. It stayed dead. That's why you have to be keen against it, you and I. We have to guard our mouth, and sometimes we're our brother's keepers, and we hear each other say things. You have to be careful how you correct a brother. But the Bible does say if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, doesn't it say that somewhere in Galatians 6 1 or somewhere in the Bible? If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering your own self also. That's how we do it. We're not above anybody, but we know that what you just said, you shouldn't have said. So say, brother, you need to back off of that. So those are things that can happen to you. Now, what causes it? Criticism basically is caused by pride of who you think you are, where you think you've come to, The estimation of yourself, the feeling that people should listen to you, you should be heard. You should tell your story so that they will listen to you. You go to any of the local hangouts, the barbershop, the beauty salon, or the local wherever the good old boys gather, you hear a lot of people talk about what they would do if they were this and what I'd do if I was that. And I'll tell you one thing. It's a whole lot of pride in what you think you know. Pride promotes criticism. Everybody ought to listen to me. Well, I'll tell you one thing I'd do. If they put me up there, <laughs> somebody would shoot you if you were up there probably. It doesn't work like that. Let me show you two or three things about pride, and then we'll come back to this. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 11 through 13. Listen to this. There is a generation that curses their father and does not bless their Mother, We're in that generation this time right now. Listen, or follow the word here. Verse 12, There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Do you hear people say today, Well, who has a right to tell me what I should do with my body? Well, who has a right to tell me anything? In other words, I am my own boss. I don't need anybody to tell me anything. Well, there is a generation that is pure in their own eyes, that is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, listen to verse 13, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. Wow, there is a generation that is proud and cocky and arrogant. Look in chapter 6 again, where you were a while ago. Proverbs 6. Verse 16, these six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. The very first thing he mentions is a proud look, a proud look, a look that telegraphs to other people, look at me. What do you think about me? Ain't I something? It's that look. You ever see the look on, say, this new generation of rap rock singers, of the look on their face, it's not a look of joy and peace. It's always with a hat backwards or something. I saw one guy the other day with a hat on backwards doing this. The sun was in his eyes. I did. Saw a picture of him. Yeah, he had his hat on backwards doing this. All you had to do is turn that beak around over your eyes and you don't have to use your head. You can wave at people then. But anyway, he said a proud look is what God hates. There are people who walk around looking like you should notice me. I'm a popular figure. I'm an actor. I'm a sports figure. And, you know, you kind of walk around. And they got that arrogant look about them. Or the girl who thinks she's the most lovely thing ever. She wants attention. She's proud of her beauty and proud of the way she looks. She wants you to look at her. And if you don't, who are you? Pride's a killer. Because it not only disturbs the human heart, it corrupts it. Because you think more highly of yourself than you ought to, and you will fall. Because the Bible says in the eyes of God, pride goes before a fall. Let me tell you something. There is nobody in this room this morning, if you're a Christian, that was able to save yourself. If you've been blessed real good this morning, it's because the Almighty God has enabled you with a talent or an opportunity or situation to bless you, and you're blessed. But he did it. Nobody has a reason to boast. Nobody has anything to boast of in Christianity. We're all unprofitable servants. All of us are. We've done only that which God gave us to do. That's the best we can do. But that's all that's required of us. When we start bragging about our building and about the size of our crowd and how much money and how many missionary trips and how many orphans, and when we start boasting of all of those things as though we've done it, we're proud. We're just proud people. We want you to notice us. We put our ad in the paper. Have you seen our newest ad in the Saturday paper where, you know, you've got a picture of your church and things about your church, all the things that you do? You haven't seen our new one? We put it in there. It's sort of an advertisement. It's kind of a commercial break in the paper for look at us. Come to us. Actually, I haven't put anything in the paper if you're listening out there in the other world. I'm really not interested in that. I prayed years ago. I, maybe I shouldn't have, and I have since repented because I don't think it's any of my business, but I prayed for a little church. Lord, don't let it get big. Not that I'm scared of a lot of people. I've been around lots of people my whole life. I was around a lot of people before I ever got here. I just thought it was easier to communicate and take stock of a smaller church than it wouldn't if you had two or 3,000 of them out there would we know who they were. I'd like to know everybody in the room if I could at least know who they are. I have no desire to hang around with you or run with you. I just want to know who you are. But when you start getting to the place where the size is everything and and your pictures on the paper and all of that kind of stuff, you're getting into that range where you get proud. And when people don't respond to your church, you become critical of them. It's a bad thing to happen to Christianity. When you realize that the Apostle Paul, a theologian, Extraordinary. And this guy was uh, amazing in how much of the Old Testament he fully understood and could quote. They didn't carry Bibles and notes around like that. They had their scrolls and their booklets or whatever they had. But he could quote, like in the book of Romans or book of Hebrews, if he wrote Hebrews, he could quote portions of the Bible to prove a point, to make a point, put things together. And yet he was able to say about himself, he said, I am the least of the saints. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm the chief of sinners. Because this is another sermon, but when he saw himself as God sees him, and he recognized that he had no worth to God, he was not entitled to anything God had. He could never say, that's not fair. She got and I didn't. He has no right to any of it. Whatever we get, God gave it to us out of the goodness and graciousness of his heart, not because we've earned it or deserved it. Or if kids would say to their parents, well, you bought him a a $10 toy, I only got a $2 toy. Now, I'm not going to go through a big story about that, but technically, I didn't have to buy you a toy, period. Now, I mean, parents will, of course, but I'm... A lot of people think that they're entitled to what somebody else has because somebody else got something out of them. Let me get back where I was with this thing about pride because pride is a terrible thing. A vain man may become proud and imagine himself as pleasing unto the Lord, but when he is, in reality, a universal nuisance, somebody wrote that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Pride is the mask of one's own faults. Pride. When a proud man thinks best of himself, then God and man think worst of him. Pride is pleasure arising from a man's thinking too highly of himself. I would just advise everybody in here, if you think you're somebody and you've come somewhere, just drop yourself down lower than everybody around you and esteem others Is better than yourself, and then you have not only no boast, but you have no reason to criticize. You kill both of them. But pride is a terrible and an awful thing. If you listen to those talk shows and stuff like that, chances are you're going to get snared. You'll get conceited. You'll think you're above everybody else or beyond everybody else. Or maybe you think you're superior. Or that preacher I told you about, or I used to know, that thought he knew more than everybody. Whenever Brother Freeman, for example, used to say things, I hear him criticize, well, I, when I teach on that, I'll show you. It's just pride. And today, as that person is D-E-A-D dead. Only thing that lives in them is memory. The memory. Nothing was accomplished. Nobody's edified. Nobody is blessed through the years because of your so-called deeper walk, which wasn't at all. In fact, you look at your life and there's nothing there. Why would you be cocky, conceited, heady, high minded, and proud? You have nothing. But I studied, I don't care. Jesus said to a lot of people, said you did this and you did that. She said, I never knew you. All that effort and time you spent at studying and learning and all that was to prove yourself above everybody else. It wasn't to bless God's people. And now you come to the time in your life, nobody not only knows who you are, but nobody is blessed by anything that you do. What a horrible way to end your life. To have had a chance at one time to benefit thousands of people and to come to a time in your life you can't benefit anybody, not even your own family. Pride is a horrible, horrible thing. It's what makes us fall. It's what causes trouble. It's what makes us unable to say, I'm sorry, because I'm right. And if I'm right, I'm not saying I'm sorry. But the Bible teaches otherwise. Just like if they take you to court to sue you, even though you're right, said, give them your cloak. Give them your coat. Give them your cloak also. If they slap you, turn the other cheek. You couldn't have much pride if you did that because everybody would be making fun of you, mocking you, looking down at you. But maybe you've got humbled enough you could look up and see God instead of looking down and seeing man's faults. A second thing that's caused by criticism is ignorance and rebellion. I think a lot of people just never were taught right, didn't know any better. They didn't know that you shouldn't criticize. They listened to the same talk shows. they run around with you. They know what's on your radio. They know what you talk about. And so they feel like they can say what they want to say. How about talking against the president of the United States? Do we have a right to speak against the president? Let me give you a verse of scripture. You need this for you go home, even though you've already had it. Would you turn to Exodus chapter 22? Exodus 22 and verse 28. This is our president now. This is who we pray for. I hope you do. See, say, well, I don't agree with him. I think the country's going in a decline. If the country goes in a decline, it's because God has allowed it to go in a decline. I may not agree with the policies and all of that, but it's not my job down here to make policies for this country to go by. I am a citizen of the United States, but I am at the same time a sojourner and a pilgrim. I am been put in another kingdom. I live in the United States, but I'm a member of another kingdom. I do not salute a flag because a flag is nothing but a piece of material. Countries are represented by flags. I know that, but I cannot pledge allegiance to a flag and to the republic for which it says because America is not a Christian nation. It is not godlike in what it does. Look at the laws that we pass. Look at what we have allowed to happen in our country, the breakdown of this. Abortions, past 50-some million. Look how many taxpayers we'd have today if they were all alive. Maybe we wouldn't be having all this trouble. Perversion, paraded in the streets, president promoting it worldwide. I don't agree with that. You know, that's his job. That's what he does. And if he wants to do that, that is fine. But that doesn't represent me in this country. And I don't have to live by that. There will be a day coming that the voice of the church might be heard in places that trigger social reactions against it. So that the government is going to say, look, either you that are government authorized churches, that is you're tax exempt. If you don't quit saying anything, this or that way, then we're going to take away your tax exemption, knowing that most people would quit giving. If they didn't get something back, they wouldn't give at all. Because their motivation for giving is not the Lord's work. It's benefiting themselves, and you know that. And if you took that away from them and the government began to audit people, oh, boy, we're out of here. That wouldn't affect us. Wouldn't affect you, would it? I would hope it wouldn't. I would hope it wouldn't. Exodus 22, verse 28, Thou shall not revile the gods, nor what? Curse the ruler of thy people. You shouldn't do that. You say, well, that's Old Testament. It is Old Testament, but it's also a principle that we can apply to the New Testament. How could you pray for the ruler of your people in First Timothy 2? How could you pray for those in authority if you're reviling them and cursing them? Or in Jude and First Peter, if you're speaking evil of dignities and you take shots at the mayor and the governor and the president and all those others up there, and if you're always mouthy about that as a Christian, how could you pray for them? How could you pray for them for their good if you're talking about how bad they are? You can't. You've been snared. While you're there, stop halfway across the Bible in Ecclesiastes. A little bit to the right of the middle, but Ecclesiastes, look at chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, the last verse. Curse not the king, no, not in thy thought, and curse not the rich in thy bedchamber, for a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. You're gonna get trapped again. Somebody's gonna hear about what you said about them and now you're gonna have to pay. Don't curse the king. Don't curse the rich. Listen, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Don't curse him. It's gonna be yours. Finally, along with criticism is murmuring and griping and complaining. Numbers 11. Murmuring means to complain with grumbling, to express discontent, just discontent all the time. Is there such a thing as a spirit of discontent? Some people, it doesn't look like you could ever help them. They're never joyful. I don't know that they can ever get out of that box they're in. What a tragedy. And grumbling about this and can't do that grumbling about that. You know what it says in the Bible about a man married to a grumbling woman? It says a froward woman, but you know what it says? He would be better to live in the corner of the attic than to have to live with that and listen to it. Because, and I mean it this way, all that yak, all that unnecessary devil-inspired yakking and complaining and all that, it's a form of criticizing. It's a form of telegraphing, this is what's in my heart about anything, this is how I feel, and blah, blah, blah. And it's not Christian. It honors nobody. And, in fact, in Numbers 11, when God's people do it, especially with regard to blaming him for, well, I don't know, why didn't God do something? You ever heard that? Well, why doesn't God do something? Well, we go to church, why doesn't God do something? Why, why, why? And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. Now they got quail. They got bread. They got a fire by night to keep them warm in the desert. They got a cloud by day to keep them cool. They are so blessed, there's not a feeble one amongst them. Everybody can walk and do his part. The very soles of their shoes never wore out while they're under a curse. They're under a curse, and this is going on. And he said, and when the people complained, I used to hear when I was a kid, some people would complain if you hung them with a new rope. Let me go on. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. What happened when people complained? In this case, they were complaining against God and his ways. And the Bible says a fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. How many of you know they would have been better if they hadn't complained about anything? They would have been better if they could put a wash before their mouth and guard the door of their lips so that they would not sin against God. Lamentations 3 says, why does a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins. Why would any of us complain about anything? God could have left us in that alley he saved us out of, in that destitute state that he saved us out of. He could have left us a long time ago. He blesses what we put our hands to. we got a Bible here full of 8,000 promises. We have a God who made the whole world that watches over this word to perform it. He even put his spirit in us to... Show us what this means and how it operates so that we are more equipped than anybody has ever been. And we complain. What do we complain about? Is it money? Ask and you shall receive. Is it complaining about your name it? You've got to answer in this book. And yet people have bypassed this book and just like that. That's not Christian. It's an open door to trouble in your life. You'll pass it on, parents. You'll pass it on to your children and they'll do that and they'll pass that same thing on to their children. It's a generational curse. It just keeps going down the line. It's just grumbling and complaining. There's always something wrong. It's not fair. I don't know why. I'll tell you one thing. God never, ever taught his people to act like that. And he always condemns his people for acting like it. You read Psalm seventy-eight. They said, Well, we know that in the wilderness he did this and he did that. Can he prepare a table here and can he provide this here? And the Bible says God heard that and he was full of wrath. The very fact that we would question his loving care for our lives. The way he's leading us, and we grumble about that. Well, I didn't get mine. I'll go to church, and we're grumbling about that. God help us. May we take note today in just a little bit that we've heard that God has spoken clearly and plainly to us this morning, us here, those out there, that we need to be careful of what we're saying, especially in this hour, because the devil's carrying a microphone around. And I sure don't want to be snared by the words of my mouth. I don't want to be trapped by the words of my mouth. One thing I want to learn is what Paul wrote. He said that you may study to be quiet and to do your own business. You study to be quiet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. you study to be quiet. Because if a man cannot bridle his tongue, he cannot bridle his body. And if you can't bridle your body, you can't offer it without spot unto God. It's all about your tongue. It's all about your tongue. Then there's more about that, if that can snare you. How about your companions? Well, we'll save that for another one. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we stand here today, Lord, as a people of need. There are no experts here. There's no great people here. You are great, and you are here, and we acknowledge you as such. We have a need today, Lord, for more of what you have to do things the way you want us to do it and to crucify everything in us that dishonors you. We have that as a basic great need. And I ask you to continue to speak to each of us, take the words that we have heard and never let them escape our minds. Never let us be snared because of our lust to be heard. Help us to do right and to live right by you and to honor you with our lives as Christians should. To live a holy, simple, and a quiet life. I ask you to bless those that are here this morning, those that listen to us in other places. I pray that the work of your spirit that brings conviction and rewards us with peace, that we would experience both. And whatever the needs are here this morning in the hearts of these people, as you can see their hearts, I ask you to minister to them. Lord, deliver us from being miserable people. Deliver us from miserableness. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.